Hey everybody, welcome back to the Beyond the Peloton podcast. I'm Spencer Martin from the Beyond the Peloton newsletter. I'm here with Andrew Vance from the Choose the Hard Way podcast. And our special guest this week is Benji Nassen of the Benji Nassen YouTube channel and the Lantern Rouge <laughs> podcast. This is a huge get for us. His second time on the podcast. We had him probably almost exactly a year ago. And yeah. Andrew is releasing a behind the music style episode on Benji's life. If you want to know more about that on his podcast, Choose the Hard Way today. And then we're talking to Benji over on Beyond the Peloton podcast about current things going on in cycling because he is a world-renowned expert on the sport. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we can, we can, if you want to know more about that, listen to Andrew's podcast where he's, we, uh, we discuss him going from kind of a, like a gamer YouTuber to consultant to the the best team in the world last year, Yumba Visma. So pretty interesting story, but Benji, what's, we just came out of this big weekend of racing, the opening of the classic season in your homeland of Belgium. We had the, your best friend, Remco Evenepoel, win the UAE Tour. That must have meant a lot to you. And Jonas Vindegaard, Andrew's Amazing. nemesis, just crushing people at O Gran, Gran Camino, setting yeah. up what should be a great Perry Nice. Like, what are your thoughts coming out of this block of racing going into the next kind of more serious block of racing? It's always difficult to judge like the first two months of racing because some races like Saudi Tour Oman and so forth, and even UAE Tour. They might not represent results that we see at the halfway point of the season. They might not mean much for now, but we've seen a pretty high level of racing when it comes to Jubal Hafid, for example, in UAE Tour. Um, the time of both Yates and Remco Evenepoel was significantly good. And when it comes to the cobble races, Jumbo Visma has been dominating quite a bit in those races, but also the best riders aren't there yet, as in Apogachar, Machi van der Poel, and even a wild fanat at Jumbo. So, Will they continue that when it comes to um, the big classics, Rondo and Vlaanderen, Paris or Bay? What do you think, mate? Andrew, do you want to you want to field this? I, I mean, I think that there's a bit of a buried storyline that I haven't heard discussed much anywhere. And Benji and Spencer would be really curious to hear your takes on this. As we all know, there is a traffic jam of bookings at the Altitude Camp Hotel on Tenerife, and we're starting to hear a lot of writers talk about how they're recently back from a an altitude training camp in Colombia. Benji, do you have any insights on what's happening here and the rising prevalence of going to Colombia for altitude camps? I mean, I heard Taco Vanderhorn mention it in both his pre and post-race interviews, which, I mean, surprised me, honestly. I, uh, I didn't know that they were heading over to Colombia for altitude camps. I know Sagan was over there recently as well with Daniel Oss. What, what are you hearing about these camps? Well, when it comes to like altitude camps in general, I feel like, the last five to ten years in cycling, there's been this like progression towards altitude camps as preparation for races more than actual races being preparation for the big races in their season. And we see this with, for example, Primoz Roglic is prepping for the Giro d'Italia, I think, with two training camps and having done already a winter training camp as well with the team. So that's quite a bit. Remco as well doing two, I think, before Catalonia. And after LBL, if my mind serves me right. But we see that very prevalently in every rider now at the big teams that they're prepping that. What is so special about Colombia? Well, I don't really know the specifics, but I would guess that a lot of Colombia is high altitude and maybe they're getting bored of going to Spain all the time. (laughs) So that's a possibility. But I wonder 
I feel like we've heard a lot of things and we've seen a lot of things of like dangerous traffic events in those countries with the accident of Bernal, for example. Well, that was kind of his fault. It's harsh to say because we're glad he's back at the level that he is right now. It could have been a lot worse, but he was looking down and rode into the back of a, of a, of a truck. But there's other events where trucks are passing very closely in Colombia and I don't know, is that a thing that happens a lot? I don't know. I've never been there. I've never done it myself. So maybe it's a similar cycling-friendly country as going to Tenerife, where a lot of riders are also going, because I think Jumbo Visma is going to uh, Teide at the moment in, um, in Tenerife. I think Remco is about to go to Teide just after uh, the UAE tour here as well. So he's also there. We've seen Philipson as well there throughout the winter. So... I still feel like Tenerife is the go-to place for most of the teams, to be honest. And I think it might be more limited, the amount of riders that go, are going to Colombia, than it might seem because the articles that are talking about it are there because it's a special place to go to for that. Now, there's also a lot of talk about the Kolobnev Hotel somewhere in Spain, but my knowledge on that is limited as well. But This hotel is amazing. We should all go to it and do a <laughs> podcast from there. <laughs> it's The rates are... It, really reasonable and the hotel Cheap. looks beautiful 55 euro an hour a, a day right yeah or something yeah we got to get down there for a for a bct and training camp my question then is you still hear stories about like riders that don't do training uh, like altitude camps yeah i don't understand it uh, i don't know what i just recently read i i read like i could be wrong but uh attila Valtor or something hadn't hadn't gone to an altitude camp before tight or something this is mem from memory so it might be wrong but a lot of riders that don't have contracts go on altitude camps, so it must surely make a difference. Laporte said the same thing, that he hadn't been doing altitude camps before Yumbo. But Andrew, I have two questions. I have two answers to your question. One, let's just address, I think the thread you're pulling on is, is there naughty things going on? Are they going to Colombia because it's further <laughs> away from, from testers? Is this correct that maybe you have some spidey sense tingling on uh, this? No, I'd never insinuate anything like well, that. Well, I, <laughs> I will just say this is a this is a joke. If anyone's listening, <laughs> this is totally a joke. But I've had people tell me that they go to places that are far away so they can they can dope while they're training, and they know they're not like they're not flying yeah. a tester out to remote Columbia. It's not happening. Um, it also helps to be at altitude because it muddles your bio profile, so it's harder to tell if you've been doping or not. I'm not saying this is what these guys are doing. My my better answer or like better scenario answer is I also have friends who are professional endurance athletes and they do these miserable training camps like up in Aspen and Creston Butte in the wintertime. Like it's not the best for training. You know, I check the weather every day for this volcano everyone goes to in the Canary Islands. It's pretty cold. Like it's not the warmest environment. So if you can go to altitude and it's tropical and warm, you know, that's got to be appealing. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that would probably be the the more pleasant answer to what's going on here. Because as Benji said, I mean, I've heard that it's not fantastic car culture. It's a little hectic. It's a little scary yeah. riding there. But, you know, maybe it's worth it if it's, you know, your body can just train so well between like 70 and 80 degrees. And if you're at 8,000 feet, that's kind of a unique environment to be in. So I, I hope that's what's going on. Yeah, I mean, the, one of the popular methodologies for a while was live high, train low, which I just Googled because I was curious if that's still in vogue. The first study I pulled up in PubMed, and if you're not familiar with this, this is the idea that 
you would sleep at high altitude and then you would go to a lower altitude where there's more oxygen available and you can put out a higher power output because when you're training at a high altitude until you're acclimatized, you're not going to be able to strain your body the same way through your wattage or power output. Um, but apparently the study from 1999 says that live high train low does not change the total hemoglobin, hemoglobin mass of male endurance athletes. Uh, but this is sleeping at a simulated altitude. So like there's also the whole methodology of sleeping in an altitude tent, which doesn't change atmospheric pressure and may not have the same impact as actually being at high altitude. So maybe this is something where we could bring someone on in the future, maybe an exercise physiologist, because honestly, I'm not quite sure what's going on with altitude training currently, other than people seem to do a lot of it and they're either going to the top of that volcano or they're going to Columbia. Well, I know I have wasted many, many time and many monies on altitude training throughout my life when I wanted to be a top, top racer. And honestly, I don't know if it helped at all. Like, you know, when I was living on the beach in Hawaii, I was, you know, in training a lot, I was probably putting out the same power as when I live at altitude now and would train really hard at times. And, you know, maybe it helped me sometimes when I would drop down and race for a little bit, you know, for the first two weeks, maybe I felt a little bit stronger, but you do atrophy like that. That is a, a problem. If you spend too much time too high, you're just not pushing the same big Watts and you lose a little bit of that top and power. You can do things like wear an ox oxygen mask on the trainer. So you can simulate riding at sea level, even you're up, if you're up at like 3000 meters, but, um, you know, it's not, I feel like the science is not as locked in as, as people say, and it does tend to go back and forth where, it used to be sleep high, train low. I tend to think that's a good thing to do. And as you say, Andrew, maybe the studies are all on these tents, which don't really simulate high altitude. It's also rare to find a place at Canary Islands would, would be one where you can sleep at 6,000 feet and then train at sea level. You know, there's not many places in the world where you can do that. Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, that's one of the things that's, that's a super trend that seems to be emerging in the Peloton this season. And Another observation that I had this weekend, Benji, would love your take on this. It seems like, I don't know if we're just seeing more races because of GCN, Flow, Eurosport. There's more coverage available than ever before with these streaming services. And it seems like the level of racing across different races is higher than it's ever been. A theory that I have that I'd love to hear some takes on mm -hmm is that we're now starting to reap the benefits of the 2020 COVID season when everyone was able to just focus on training before coming back to competition. And I'm, I'm wondering if that actually up-leveled the entire Peloton, number one. And number two, gave a boost to these younger riders who previously may have been, um, you know, stagers on teams and have been just like thrown into the the mix at, uh, before they had a, a bigger training base. But what do you guys think? When it comes to the, first of all, the coverage, I agree that there's more like centralized coverage of cycling races, as in it's more in the same place and people know where to go to find it these days. And if it's not available on the likes of a GCN plus, if it's not available on mainstream Eurosport and so forth and uh, Sportza in Belgium and so forth, well, then they're probably going to have to look for a YouTube live stream. And if it's not there, then there's probably no stream at this point. So uh, there's there's a lot more coverage than in the past for, sm for small races as well. So this entire thing, I agree with that. Now, when it comes to um, the higher level, when it comes to 
um, that we're seeing over the last couple of years. I think since 2020, let's be honest about it. I think if we look at the tour of 2019 and 2018, the level is notably lower uh, than we see in 2020 to 2022. I'll be honest, I don't know the exact reasoning behind it, but one of the reasons could be that it is because of the, the COVID season and so forth. We also notice that the riders at the start of the season tend to be at a higher level than they were in the past. Usually they like start kicking up as the races started going up, but now because some of these riders are probably waiting until like April and sometimes March to start their season, they have to be at a decent level to already ride the bigger races. But then you also see riders that can go throughout an entire year and be at a, a decent level. Like a Pogaccio, for example, I do believe that he's still got a margin to grow towards the likes of a, a Tour de France and so forth at this point. But he's definitely one of the riders that can go at an entire level for the entire season. But I'll throw it to Spencer to give us a take on, uh, on your, uh, your take. Yeah, I kind of agree with Andrew where it does feel like something happened in 2020. And I feel like maybe it was this culture of you race to get into shape. You don't really see that happen. Guys show up and they're ready to go. Like we saw that this past yeah. weekend. You know, they were ready. Yumbo was ready to go. Used to be you would just kind of find your legs through a season. I also wonder, you know, Pogacar's basement is so high that yeah. it probably appears that he's always in shape. But, you know, it's like well, maybe he, they said he doesn't even hadn't done a training camp yet or an altitude camp yet. He wasn't in Blue A 2021. <laughs> the one time he, <laughs> he really fell through. But um, <laughs> I agree that they, uh, they indeed responded to uh, your homeboy, Brenil, um, that um, he hadn't gone on a training camp yet and so forth. If he does that, he can probably go up a tiny bit in margin, but also don't think that he's going to go up 20% from what he's doing right now. That, that seems, seems a bit a unrealistic either. Un but yeah. we're also maybe overreacting to early season races, as in last year, after Strade, everybody was like, oh, Bogacar is going to ride away on the Cipressa in Milano Sanremo solo, and he's never going to be seen again. That's unrealistic. And I feel like we're going into that unbeatable phase as well at this point. Obviously... The fact that Vingegaard is also at a decent level now means that we've got a battle which might not make it as serious as last year, the kind of feeling that a certain rider is so much above the rest. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. And I was going to say, I wonder too, if like they're going like this, you know, they're kind of going through periods of instead of one peak per year, like a Lance Armstrong, maybe they have three peaks and we just yeah. don't see them when they're at the in the valley you know they're off yeah. at their training camps in the canary islands in mallorca training and we're just not like watching them race when they're not in top top fitness yeah but i think that's that's possible and i'm so much you know benji as you pointed out so much is being said uh i mean i think that pagachar example is a perfect one from strada bianchi last year where people thought okay he's just going to steamroll the entire season i mean i know a lot of people, including us, were saying similar things this weekend with Yumbo Visma's performance. But another observation that I had, number one, wow, like they did have an incredible ride. It is going to be really interesting to see what happens when we have Wout in the mix. But in addition to that, we really didn't have a full force quick step squad at any of these races. Uh, and Does I'm that really exist? Well, I mean, that's a good question. Or is Quickstep now truly transitioning to become a GC team to support Remco, right? So I think that's a question mark. But at the same time, I think 
it used to be you had just Enios was the one super team, and now yeah. we've you know Enios is it remains to be seen how their season goes. Quick step is a question mark, but they have high potential. Intermarche also they're not on that level, but they do have some riders who really are doing some remarkable rides. And then of course there's Yumbo Visma. So these races just seem just more exciting and dynamic to me than than we used to see in, you know, like 2015 to 2018. And I think there's an aspect towards Yumbo there where they're so strong in blocking these first two races that obviously their tactics were remarkable in the first two classics we had here. In Omelope, they basically forced their hand really early, created a situation where they had multiple riders up front, Quickstep blew their entire team in the chase of that with Kasper Ederson, Kasper Pedersen, Ederson, that's a, a Brazilian name for a Danish guy. Casper uh, <laughs> Peterson being one of the riders that was used, Tim de Klerk then crashing after being used, Tom Van Trek being used in that situation as well. So that's three riders already gone for the team. Sineshal crashed afterwards. So that's four riders gone for the team. Lampard was there after Molenberg, but he's not at his highest level, Lampard, at the moment, it seems. Ballerini did sprint to top 10, but he'd expect more from a team like that. Then again, Asgren's not there as well because he was uh, ill before the weekend. So that plays a factor. We'll see Alaphilippe again at Strade, and we'll see Asgreen again at Paris-Nice, has been announced as well, very recently before we recorded this podcast. So, I think they will get stronger towards Ron van Vlaanderen. With both Asgreen and Alaphilippe there, they should compete more than they are doing right now. Now, Jumbo will still be strong, let's be honest about that. I was a bit disappointed in Søren Kranderson this weekend, but maybe that might, might just be a one-off where he wasn't that great in Omlop, because I, I recall him dropping relatively early, where I was like, oh, Søren Kranderson and Quinton Hermans could be a more support for Van der Poel in the classic sense of thought. I think that's mainly going to show himself in Milano Sanremo. Um, in the classics, I think Van der Poel might end up alone. But let's talk about RVV and Roubaix for a second. Jumbo's strong team, I think they can help less in RVV than in Roubaix. With the team they have with Van, uh, with Van Aert in there as well, Van Baal and so forth, Laporte, uh, Nathan van Hoordonk, Tijbenoord, and so forth, they should win Roubaix with that team. But a lot can happen, obviously. Punctures and so forth, or wheels collapsing in half like last year. <laughs> but um, when it comes to RVV, I think if Valens goes ham with Pogacar and his wheel on Adequatum on the Paterweg, Pogacar can go solo, or with Van der Poel, or with Van Aert if he can follow. So then you're not going to have 10 Jumbo riders in the wheel of Pogacar there. Well, I don't know. I mean, you think, who knows if Venard, how sick he is. He's currently sick. You think if Venard's a peak fitness, he can't stay with Pogacar on those Flanders climbs? Uh, you got to think that he, he might at least stay but close. But he the might team not will. have seven Yumbo yeah. riders with him that time. True, and then true, it's a true. 1v1v1. And if you're Vanderpool and Pogacar, you keep on riding, even if Venard doesn't ride in your wheel. Because you're yeah. like, I don't want these seven Yumbo riders to come back. And then you try the and beat him on the next spot or better or whatever. Yes, yeah. And also a concern I have, this is unfounded. Are, are, is this like the best we're going to see Yumbo? Like when Van Hart gets back there? <laughs> are you familiar with this discourse about Manchester yeah. City that they're worse with Holland? Oh. Like that Holland screws the team up. And you know, if it, people don't know, he's probably the best player in the world at the moment. But is, are we going to see that where if like Van Hart comes back, they're not as gelled? Is it just going to be this kind of toxic 
vacuum that just crushes all of them. That it's like, oh, Van Art's ruining this team. Van Barl's the better rider because let's not forget he got second at Flanders last year and won Roubaix. I mean, that's that's a better recent Palmares in those races than Wout Van Art. Palmares, yes. I think when it comes to better rider, uh, it's not my Belgian in myself, but in general, I do believe that Van Art is definitely on the same level as Van Barl, if not better. The thing with Van Barl is he's got this sneaky way of anticipating action and getting away early and then benefiting from that situation later in the race. He did that at World Championships in Flanders. He did it at plenty of races. And he can benefit from team tactics. And that's why his results might end up better than Van Aert this year, unless Van Aert actually ends up winning Roubaix, which is also possible. But because they have so many riders, their go-to strategy in Omelope and Kuruna was, okay, we've got so many riders, we're going to make it hard. Then we're going to split it up. We're going to have some riders go in a group up front. And at that point, we've made it so hard already that there's limited domestiques to catch those riders. But not likely won't be the rider that makes that move. It was Van Bale that did it. It was not Van Hoorong and Benoit that did it. So it seems like Van Aert might be in a trouble in the sense that if in Roubaix, for example, they make it super hard and they split it up and get two, three riders up front, Van Aert might be chained in the group behind. And Van Aert might not like that. But I think Yumbo will be happy if they win, regardless of who it is for. Yeah, I agree. And it's funny as Pitcock, Tom Pitcock, after the race was like, yeah, when Vimbara attacks, you don't necessarily respond. It's like, maybe you should. <laughs> See, <laughs> the guy got like third at World Championships, second at Flanders, and one Roubaix. Maybe follow him. But uh, it does seem like he kind of has a cloak of invisibility and is allowed freedom. Vinart will not be. What I didn't get in Omlop was how Bahrain responded, as in, obviously it's in the moment, so perhaps Milan just responded in the moment, but Milan is responding to a move of Van Barle where I would expect Mohoric to respond to, while Milan stays behind and is a sprinter if it comes back together. So I feel like Mohoric should have been the one to watch out for moves like that from Van Barle at those moments and respond to that while Milan stays in. Does that make sense? Yeah, it's funny that that's what they did the next day. You must have called them and told them that, and then at KBK... All of this now a lot richer with the Bahraini money. (laughs) (laughs) No, you're exactly right. It didn't make any sense for Milan to be in that, to be in that move because he should just be sitting in the wheels. This is kind of a ringer question. I was fed this by someone close to you. I have been told to ask you about watt per kilo estimates. Oh yeah, I know who proposed that. His name ends with NG. Um, but um, <laughs> now in general, I just feel like there's been a lot of talk on social media about what per kilo estimations and how valuable what per kilo data is and so forth. And I think there's misconceptions and I think it could also be better presented in some sort of fashion as in like what per kilo data is used in cycling, like data is used in cycling, what per kilo data is used in cycling. It can represent how good a certain rider is climbing on that specific climb on that specific day. But you don't just interpret the data as in, oh, this rider climbed 7 watt per kilo for 8 minutes today. You don't just interpret that and say, oh, you can do that every day. That's not the case. You need to interpret that data and think, okay, what are the patterns today? Let's take a look at his history. Do we have more data points? If we have 100 data points of the same rider, of like doing watt per kilo X amount for X amount of time, then you've got more information, but then you need to think about every single instance, the context about it. This day, he did that performance after 
spending X amount of kilojoules the entire race, and the last kilo hour before that effort was at threshold, for example. That gives a lot of information about, oh, if tomorrow is that amount of kilojoules and a threshold and those are the situation and the situation is similar, the context is similar, then that might be a valuable amount of like data. And the more data you have like that, the more patterns you can see and conclusions you can assume. You can't make conclusions necessarily. You can assume them and see if they potentially hold true the next time around. But I feel like a lot of the time, the criticism towards like what per kilo data is like, what does that mean? It's like such an isolated data point, right? Yeah. And Andrew brought up a good point last year during the tour. You know, it's like you'd see all these, these are estimates of what per kilo yeah. based on how fast they're going. And a lot of times those watt calculations are pretty accurate. You know, yeah. you, can, you can do a good job, but also Andrew asked, how do we know what these guys weigh? Like, are they going off their listed weight? Like, did they have a big breakfast? Did they poop before the stage? You know, it's like the weight must change so much during a grand tour. Like, where's that weight number coming from? Yeah, there's definitely a riders that aren't known when it comes to their weight. There's ways to maneuver around that. I think there's this method now, etalon weight per kilo, which is basically what would the effort have been if this rider was 60 kilos? And do that for all of them. And then you can like compare those efforts against each other. That's a method that is used by Nychaka on Twitter, for example. But talking about Nychaka, um, he's, he's a person that, just like the many you've, you've just mentioned, posts what per kilo estimations on Twitter, for example. And on one end, I find it very valuable information, as in to have a certain grasp of what the effort is like. And then with the extra context of each individual data point, you can figure out, okay, that day was that kind of context, was headwind on the climb, there was weather, heavy weather before the climb arrived, so the effort was harder before the climb. You see that at the kilojoules. I feel like uh, that never bad, gets discussed. Bad road, uh, rolling resistance, stuff like that is all included in calculations and so forth. There's like a, a listing of what he uses uh, mentioned there. I do feel like there's a margin of error there as well. But you got to keep that in mind. None of these numbers are going to be 100% accurate to the bone. That's logical. But so is power data. Because then you look at Ineos, for example, very recently at Valenciana, uh, there, were so, there was some power data that Gagan Hod was sharing on his social media on Instagram. And half of the intel was like, either you're riding at a really high level, which is like an unbearably high level, or there's something wrong here. And then the next week you get a, a review by DC Rainmaker on YouTube about the specific Shimano um power meters that are being used in the peloton right now that in when they're riding in the small ring they overrate by 20 watts <laughs> that's a pretty <laughs> big issue with a power meter <laughs> andrew's so, favorite company by the way shimano well they're good at a lot of things but that specific power meter clearly wasn't that great yeah, um, yeah. i don't i don't have that one i i do love their gear i love di2 i, I have a follow-up oh, i have DI2. a follow-up question for you uh Sorry. benji so <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you mentioned all of these exogenous factors that are generally not considered when people are looking at these climbing performances. Wind in particular, we have no idea what's going on with the wind. There, there actually are ways you could potentially measure that, yeah. but riders... I think they're used in the calculations. Okay. Um, but there, there's lots of things like that. I can't list them all here right now. But there's also the factor that maybe they should be more presented in a way where people can figure that out in some shape or form. Like one of the things that is also presented is like 
um, a certain watt per kilo level is like shown on a graph that says uh, at this point you're uh, this is the level that a grant or winner potential level is for a performance. But the question then is one performance like that doesn't mean you're a grant or winner. So perhaps the the display should be like this is the level at which a grant or winner is supposed to climb consistently, except for just one time stuff like that. So there's a bit of like maybe the way it's presented could be a tiny bit better i would say and maybe there should be like a, a plus minus after after showing the what per kilo estimations to show that there's a certain margin of error so that people know what the margin of error is for example roughly of that estimation because i think those are the kind of things that if you want people to take your data to the top and like to understand it and to accept it, they need to want to understand how you get to it and understand the context surrounding it that you can't just use the data, single single data point, the one you see, for example. But hey, I've never been the biggest fan of Nightjack. I've been public about that on Twitter. He does do good work when it comes to what per kilo estimations, but the way he represents them might not always be the very uh, the very best way to get people on your on your end, I would say. If, if, <laughs> if we set aside that specific uh, Twitter handle and yeah. the data that's being put out. What do you think about the value of this data to the average fan of the sport? I mean, it's incredibly interesting yeah. to us and people who are super deep into it. But as the sport grows, there's historically been a resistance to sharing this data publicly, in particular because there's it just generally leads to a lot of speculation around doping and cheating. However, do you think it would be beneficial if teams were more public with their data? Would it be actually entertaining for the average fan to be able to take a look at watts per kilo data, even live perhaps during broadcasts? Would that add anything to the entertainment value of the sport? I think I would enjoy to see more data in a similar fashion that you see more data in sports like F1 and so forth. It needs to be understandable though. It needs to be able to be groused by people that might not be as hard into the sport as we are. I think power data might just that could be more mainstream. While if we go even further, like if we start mentioning, oh, this rider has spent so many kilojoules so far, and that uh, leads to that, 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 then it's going to start becoming very difficult. We need to, I think it needs to be digestible data that is relevant for the majority of the viewership. And that is where sometimes I agree where you can't put too much out either, but that's different. Displaying it on TV versus teams not being transparent about them is different nothing. I would love if the sport just went fully transparent when it comes to their power data. But it's obviously not going to happen in cycling. Like, cycling is a sport with not the best, uh, the best history, let's just say like that, doping history and so forth. And trans transparency is one of the things that just doesn't happen often in cycling. And maybe that should be enforced because I, I would love to see more transparency in the sport. I would love to... It's difficult, eh? Because I would also say that the sport does it to themselves because this sport has plenty of people that have a doping history running teams and in teams when it comes to the S's and so forth that I'm like, well, if you keep doing that, and then people are right to sometimes speculate in the sport, no? When it's also like, show us your work. I want to see yeah. your power numbers in training. And then how did you get there yeah. for the race? I mean, that actually would help dispel a lot one, of 
One thing that I do want to mention is when it comes to like, let's say they put their weight public, they have to put their weight public as well. That might lead to more eating disorders and stuff and cycling. Yeah. So that's like the, the antithesis where I don't want like something bad to happen to the riders as a consequence. That makes sense? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, a whole other side of this conversation did pretty much doesn't get discussed because there isn't public data about it is the coefficient of aerodynamic drag of rider bike combinations. And this is something I was reflecting on. I actually, as I was watching KBK, something that I noticed and I was trying to figure out whether this was an actual strategic de decision or if he was just cold. But uh, I noticed that Taco Vanderhorn when he's really going for it in a race, almost always wears a skull cap that covers his yep. ears. And, and it made it made me think about that specialized time trial helmet. I was like, this is possibly a marginal gains move to keep the the air flow smoother around his ears. If and if you looked at that breakaway, he also was the only rider wearing latex shoe covers. Everybody else yep. else had normal shoe covers on. And he of course rides the ridiculously narrow bars, which a lot of riders do. But if you look at his profile, I'm I mean I don't think his elbows flared out past the width of his rib cage in the entire four and a half hour race. He yeah. has to be one of the most aero riders with one of the lowest CDAs in the entire peloton. And it's the only way he can compete. You know, he just doesn't put out the power <laughs> numbers that other guys do. You know, I've, yeah. some of these are easy wins. Like I was noticing this weekend, there would be teams with like flappy jerseys. So it, you yeah. know, let's say the bike is $10,000. You're ruining it with a hundred dollar rain jacket. Like it's it's crazy some of these arrow losses that these teams are just taking. Well, I don't know if you all noticed this, but in the last two K, I was watching the race with my four year old and my six year old, and I was talking to Sam, my six year old, about Taco's low CDA. This is the kind of thing we talk about on <laughs> on a Sunday at my house. We also were talking about. I was like, listen, son, what? I was like, I want to talk to you about numerical superiority because in a situation <laughs> like this, this is what's about to go down. And like two seconds later, Adam Blythe started talking yeah. about numerical superiority. I was like, see, Sam? <laughs> but I was watching Taco. A couple of things jumped out of me. Number one, of that group of five, he had the most dialed arrow set up, number one. Number two, he was the only rider who had a flappy number. He didn't have his number. I mean, I'm sure he pinned it as well as he could, but his number yeah. was actually flapping in the wind. Number three, if you look at these riders, even when they're in super aero mo mode, I understand why they can't use Bluetooth earpieces, but given the links they go to to conceal cables on their bikes, the fact that they still have their floppy earpiece just like dangling out there in the wind yeah. seems ridiculous to me. But what do you all think the conversation was between Taco and Mohorich? right when that attack happened because they had that they kind of dropped back they started talking to each other and then things kicked off and the race was over and they just i mean mohorich indicated he didn't have the energy to go i guess taco was gassed or well, he would have followed as well the, was from the early breakaway yeah that's crazy to, yeah. he was the only guy that could hang on so i'm sure he you could you could have said anything to him right there you could have said aliens yeah. just landed at the finish line and he would have said oh <laughs> sounds good <laughs> he didn't know what was going on <laughs> mohoric was i think i think mohoric was completely done the second that von hoylong made his move on the left side of the road and mohoric tried to close it down in the echelon section because that was a, a small crosswind section those final few kilometers while benoit was like trying to force everybody else to, to close on each other so that benoit could follow in last wheel I think that's where Mohoric lost his race completely. 
So, um, yeah, there's just so much when it comes to efficiency, both on arrow and pedaling efficiency and so forth, and so many things that are overlooked, maybe. While I think Mohoric was one of those riders in the Tour de France 2021 or 2020, the one where he had two stages, I think it was 2021, where yeah. he was also not putting out the most watts when riding away from the likes of a track rider, probably Steven, because he's always in Tour de France breakaways and don't end up winning. So um, Mohoric was riding away from him uh, there as well. And that was also not the biggest power numbers, but he's just so efficient when it comes to his arrow. And we see that in the sense as well, where he's just the king of it. But I like to throw this conversation differently. What do you think about riders that kill cats? All right. So Benji, I heard you discussing this on the Lantern Rouge <laughs> podcast this morning. I have to say, I haven't been on Twitter, so I don't know what you're talking about. What happened? I can talk about it. <laughs> okay. So Antonio Tiberi, pretty talented rider. I think he top 10 UAE tour. I'm not sure about it. Um, decent climber, has time trial capabilities as well. And he apparently lives in San Marino, um, supposedly for tax reasons, according to um, to what I read. <laughs> but I don't blame him in that sense. Now, he was there and he bought an air rifle and he decided to test it out first on a traffic pole. And then he saw a cat and he intentionally aimed it at the cat, shot at the cat intentionally, according to the article that was brought out. And the cat died, and he didn't expect the cat would die. And that's his defense. But he was he pled guilty, basically, and 4,000 euro finance of thought. And I think I think they his agency just brought something out like AJ Sports and so forth with like an apology and so forth. I predicted this apology this morning, by the way, like an apology of like. I, I'm apologizing to the fans, to the team, to the people that I that I heard when it comes to the cats and so forth. And I will also make a donation to a cat shelter. I predicted that one. That's like the go-to PR move, right? But all in all, he's just on my hate list when it comes to writers now. This dude, that's that's like psycho behavior, right? Testing your air rifle on a cat? Yeah, yes, it's bad. We're actually anti-killing cats on this podcast. Yeah, we denounce <laughs> cat killing, like full stop. Like we didn't have yeah. going. Is yeah. this worse? <laughs> is this worse than doping for his brand? You know, oh, Jesus. like think of like Valverde was just embraced, like didn't skip a beat. Like I like Tiberi as a writer, like 21 yeah. years old, really 100%. talented writer. Let's just say he wins three tour stages this year. You know, maybe it probably won't happen. And, you know, is the NBC sports coverage just going to be like, have to be like, this guy is a psychopath who kills cats for fun? Or do we just pretend it didn't happen? It's kind of an uncomfortable. We know what we know what happens in pro cycling coverage. This will get totally ignored. I don't know. I don't know. I, I can understand, like, obviously doping just gets swept under the rug, but this is pretty bad. This is different. This is different. Like doping, I'm not a fan of, clearly. Um, then again, I might try it for a YouTube video. If, uh, <laughs> 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 nah, on, uh, like doping and cycling, not a fan of, but, um, killing cats is, is like, it's like something different. No, like I'm definitely not a fan. have a hard time yeah. coming back from this. Sprint yeah, deviations yeah. that could actually lead to someone being in the hospital as well. Like the one of Grunewegen back in the day, maybe worse than doping as well. Maybe yeah, def definitely. I definitely think there's a there's kind of a weird intentional ones. Yeah, like like Fred Wright at the Volta. 
Bad guy. Get out of here. (laughs) (laughs) I actually, I had a, in my notes, I had a kind of a, something related to this I'd like to discuss. And I'm now, I'm scrolling through this article about the cat killing. It's terrible. I'm I'm reading the quote. Yeah, I'm reading the quote from the owner of the cat. And um, he was San Marino's minister of tourism, a former captain, (laughs) regent, or head of state of San Marino. And he says, the cat didn't bother anyone. This is so gnarly. It's I, fucked this, up. This is this this is super fucked up. So this guy is 21, Antonio Tiberi. Yeah. One of the questions that I have, because we are seeing talent at a higher level than we've ever seen before at a younger age. And one of the things that I was reflecting on is <clears throat> as we see this trend emerging in the sport, I actually think one of the greatest rate limiters for these young riders, it's their emotional maturity. And yep. their ability to be leaders, because if you want to win a grand tour, a classic, whatever the case may be, you need to be able to lead a team of people and you need to coordinate them. And yeah, you have a DS sitting in a car, but it is not a, it's not a video game, right? <laughs> and this, this is real life. You have to use judgment. And even if you're uh, getting paid to support someone, if you're the teammate of this guy who's you know, yeah. apparently a, a fucking moron. And he shot a cat not knowing Imagine that you... you having you, to you, sleep with him in the well, next yeah. race. Yeah, you point a gun at some... I mean, Spencer and I both grew up in uh, the middle part of the country. And I don't know about you, Spencer, but um, I did. I had an air rifle when I was a young person. And, you know, we were taught, hey, if you point a gun at something, it it could kill it. Like, don't do that. But yeah, anyway, shoot his foot yeah. off or shoot a hole through his foot. Went on to play for the Chiefs, though, so I guess it turned out okay for him. But no, him. you were like well aware that you're not supposed to point guns at things. Yeah, yeah. But the bigger question here, I think, is what is, uh, you know, is it possible to accelerate the emotional maturity of young people so they can handle the responsibility and the stress that comes with being in the spotlight? Number one, and number two, to actually be the kind of leader you need to be. Cause a lot of people have the physical gift. Not everybody has what it takes emotionally to be a leader at this level with the level of attention and scrutiny that you receive. I think it comes also from experienced riders around you in the team and maybe around you in the environment as well. As in, for example, if you're a young rider, you're 20 and so forth, you're coming from Australia or something. I think Patrick brought this up as an example on the RCP this morning. And let's say you have to move towards Andorra or something or Monaco to be in Europe and so forth. Do you have experienced riders in that region or do you have people or friends in the neighborhood as well that could support you next to the bike and riders, experienced riders that could support you on the bike? I think that combination is really important. Yeah. I mean, I'm trying to, I mean, 21, I guess does feel young to me now. It is a little crazy that you just moved to a new place you don't know yeah. anyone and you're just riding your bike all the time that is and the and one something... cat you do know <laughs> that is also so... how are you gonna live next to this guy you fucking <laughs> shot your neighbor's cat and you're gonna fuck up right you're gonna live next to him you yeah, gotta move to him out of san marino now yeah I i'm not joking i have an issue with his with his stay there um yeah it, we just don't talk about it i guess where we just assume you know, I'm not blaming this on Mark Hershey at all, but Mark Hershey came onto the scene, was amazing. Like, I think people forget how good Mark Hershey was in 2020. And then he just kind of had these bizarre, like he got his wisdom teeth taken out like in January, which is an odd decision. 
um, the next year and he's just kind of had trouble refining that form, you kind of forget that these are kids. Like, do you remember when Mark Cavendish, when he was a young writer, he had an off season where he was dating a South Africa or South American model and he was in South America and he got elective teeth surgery and he got a, like a infection from it and it ruined his whole season where what, yeah, did he like get caps or something or what did he do? They, got, they ground him all down. You know, he's had like, it's like me, we have these British teeth where you just got to like, you got to knock them out and put in new teeth basically. But, and it, he had some infection, you know, cause he's like, like in Costa Rica or something getting teeth surgery. And like, if, I think it was a year after he won San Remo and everyone thought he was going to do well in San Remo and he got dropped after like 10 K, but you just don't think about people, young people's bad decision-making off the bike affecting it. But oftentimes it does. Yeah, and if that's the case, it doesn't matter if you can put out seven watts per kilo for 20 or 30 minutes. If you yeah. don't have the emotional intelligence to win the trust of your teammates and uh, to not do things off the field of play, then you're never going to get in the position to actually win. There's also the aspect we've spoken about data now, data, data, I don't care. It's like different countries pronounce it differently, apparently, but I'll, I'll say data. From now on, I don't know who I make happy, uh, UK or US, but um, I would say that um, it's important when it comes to data to balance it out with the human element of the sport. Because if you go fully data, you won't get anywhere either, I think. It needs to be first, like, for example, you've got data, like if I got a watch that tells me that I'm going to be shit today and I feel great, then it's not that great that my watch is telling me that I'm going to be shit today and I didn't sleep well or something. That's an example. But next to that also, if you do have data, you need to be able to kind of like present it in a way to riders in a human way and use it for motivation and not for other means, if that makes sense. It can be used to make a plan for a race and so forth, but there's more to cycling than just data. There's the factor that if a rider is riding in front of you, 10 meters, you might be able to go a bit harder than you're usually going. So stuff like that, I got to keep in mind. Does it make sense? Yeah, yeah, that completely makes sense. And Benji, you might be too close to this to talk about it, but if you can, I'd love to hear yeah. your take. Um, something Spencer and I have discussed a number of times is among modern pro cycling teams, Jumbo yeah. Visma kind of seems like the most emo team. And emo. they, yeah, like they, they're like more attuned to riders' emotional needs, I think, than oh. at least from the outside, that yeah. seems to be our perception. And yeah. they seem to really have a high degree of care for the emotional well being of their riders. Do you think yeah. that that's a differentiator and why they're able, in addition to the physical talent of their riders, is that part of why we see such a high level of performance? I think it's important for a team to have both good quality data analysts and so forth and performance people and so forth that side of things but i think there's also factors like having a maybe not in-house psychologist uh, in the team or uh, i might be best if it's a third party one i'm guessing but those kind of things coaches instead of like just managers kind of like it's a it's a small difference eh but if someone's like someone if you're a manager, the best kind of manager is one that is completely in tune with their riders and not just someone that says you need to do this and this data says that you can do it. No, you need to ask, what do you think you can do right now? Oh, we've got this data that shows that this tactic could work out. What do you think about it? It's like, you need to go back to the rider every single time because that's the way to go, in my opinion. And you 
I think you can also see with with Jumbo Visma, but also with some other teams. To be honest, like top, usually the the top teams are pretty okay when it comes to balancing both the human element and the data element. Tactics wise, it's definitely showing for Jumbo as well in the last year. But I think there's other teams that also do that pretty well. DSM has been criticized quite a bit for leaning too much towards the the data element and less to the human element. And I haven't been inside DSM, but I hear that from ex-riders of the team and sometimes from current riders of the team, but um, that it's very data-reliant. And that is not beneficial either, because if the riders are too young, they might not enjoy the sport much if they get told everything data-related and factually-related, and if their feelings don't matter at all, then they might feel like, okay, this is not what I expected from cycling. I expected to have fun as a cyclist. I expect this job to be my dream job, and that might not be the case. I think we saw it with, um, what's his name, Xander Vervlusem or something that said that this is not the sport he was uh, looking forward to, um, then well, left the sport it? as a consequence. Both Sorry. Dumoulin and Kittle came up in that team, right? Marcel yeah. Kittle? And then both a lot, retired, a lot of extremely them. young. Yeah. Um, yeah, definitely, but there's just a lot of riders. I think Tish Benoit was also one of the riders that Ended up leaving DSM in a non-so-happy way. Von Wilder as well. Bargill, but then again, that might have been Loki his fault as well, because I swear he just denied team orders and then they kicked him out of the Vuelta, if I recall correctly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's a different you can't Common occurrence at the Vuelta. Yeah. <laughs> we need like behind the scenes Vuelta. That that yeah. Netflix documentary should be about the Vuelta, not the tour. Just the Vuelta. So uh well, so, sorry, go ahead, Ben. Quickstep will have one, and I think the Velta will be in it. So, but then again, show it's me the guys made, getting so. hammered at two in the morning at the disco tech. Let's morning. see yeah. how they dance. <laughs> oh, yeah, I want a world team dance off. One of the things, uh, another thing that jumped out following KBK, and I also I was pointing this out to my son Sam. I said, "Hey, look at the screen after the finish." Tispanud had won. I said. Can you tell me who won the race? Because the whole Yumbo team was there and they're congratulating each other. And I think typically when there's a scene like that, you can tell who the winner is and there's a lot of deference. You can just tell it in physically how the riders are interacting. And I couldn't tell who won the race because of the cohesion in that team and like the true joy that you could see among yeah. all of the riders and the way they were mm -hmm. physically interacting. It really struck me. It seemed totally remarkable. Do you want to guess... How many pro wins does Tej Benut have? Do you guys know the answer to this? Three? Paris, nice, Strade, and Amlo? Uh, and Kurde? Or more? I'm going to go with... Uh, okay. Ah, which one am I missing? But he, he won that race. Like, kind of seemed like it was never in doubt. But you got to say, it, which one am I missing? Strade, Paris, nice stage, and Kurde. What else did he win? It's a stage of something. Hold on, I'm looking it up. But to Andrew's point, he was not losing his mind. You know, it wasn't like, yeah. you know, like when Taco, let's say Taco Vanderhorn won that Giro stage two years yeah. ago. It was, oh, it's a tour of Denmark stage. Oh, Stage one, <laughs> no 2019. How did you forget that, Benji? Oh. <laughs> Oops. We, we all grew up watching that race. We remember all the editions of Tour of Denmark. Bond favorite. But it didn't seem... It just seemed routine to them. You know, it kind of reminds me of yeah. you know, like Jim Valvano, where you would have players like cut the nets down in practice. So yeah. they were, they could visualize the success where it wasn't like, oh my God, I've won a race. It was like, well, no, I expect to win because I'm on this yeah. team that wins and it's a team win. It's not just a writer win, even though that's yeah. a rare occurrence for him. Yeah. And 
this actually tees up my next question perfectly. What, what happened flying. to Ineos? Like they used to be the Yumbo. They were the Yumbo of of cycling before Yumbo. Now they spend a ton of money. Like their payroll is massive, like close to 50 million US dollars a year. Mm -hmm. And they just seem outgunned at almost every race. Did they fall too much into this? It's about the data. We, you know, we don't, emotions are for weak people. We just go on data and, and, and I hate, <laughs> they used to have a rule where you couldn't have a significant other if you worked for the team. It's almost like a toxic masculinity environment. Do you think they've caved under that or what's happened there? Oh, that's a good question. I don't know. I think they're in a difficult situation here because they, they have Bernal that had a significant accident. So they can't do much about that one. He was looking to be their Tour de France guy for a while now. I think Pitcock will transition towards a GC rider at some point in the future. Maybe might not be next year because Olympics are coming then, mountain bike Olympics, and he might focus on that again. So maybe 2025 is the year that, that he finally goes for GC himself properly. He needs his DT a bit better than Algarve, though, that's for sure. That but, was bad. Yeah, that, that, was, that was awful. But it was cool to see him ride on the side of the road instead of on the road <laughs> itself with his TT bike. But um, outside of that, Carlos Rodriguez is still rumored to be leaving to Movistar, so they're losing one there. Um, Gagan Hart seems a bit better, but he's, he doesn't seem like that guy's that's going to win another Grand Tour again. Sivakov seems to have snagged, stagnated a bit as well. It kind of has to come from the young guns. Like, Ben Turner has been great, but he's not going to win a Grand Tour. He's more the Classics guy. And then he falls out before the Classics, so they're losing a very big factor when it comes to the Classics in him. And... I don't feel like Pitcock is at the level of a Vanderpool and so forth in the classics. And therefore, it's difficult for me to see him like compete for an RVV victory or a Roubaix victory at any time soon. But hey, I hope he proves me wrong. So I think they're kind of stuck in a position of a lot of riders that have a lot of potential, but a lot of them seem to be stagnating just before they reach the top. And yeah. a rider that did reach the top, Bernal, had an accident. So, I don't know. It's difficult to judge this team at the moment. They do seem like they turn talented youngsters into mediocre veterans. It's a troubling trend that's been happening since Froome, since the Froome incident, and then he left the team. It's, you know, say, it's like American soccer. The future is always bright, and then they actually never quite get past that last step. I'd say good veterans instead of mediocre ones, because they're still at a level yeah. where you're like... You can still win races and so forth. I'm very much looking forward to the likes of a Sheffield, what he will do to see what Turner will completely go further into and so forth. But yeah, they are missing something GC-wise. And I'm probably missing some riders in my head when it comes to that team. Like uh, Daniel Felipe Martinez, his contract is running out, for example. Like, what will he do in the next year? The plus He's so wasn't... good. Yeah. And he never gets chances there. He never gets chances, but I also feel like I have a difficulty seeing him move up to a Grand Tour winning position. I see him as a potentially top five rider in a Grand Tour, but I don't see him on the podium necessarily. So that's kind of my view on him right now. Gary Thomas is Gary Thomas can still to podium the, the Giro and can potentially well, winning might be difficult against Evenepoel and and um, Roglic, because but you never know what can happen in a race. Roglic has finished less Grand Tours than he has uh, than he has finished in the last five probably that's a it guess it sounds right it's one of those things that sounds right so we'll just yeah, go with it exactly. yeah, Garrett thomas is is freakishly 
I'd say he's like riding the best of his career. I just don't yeah. know if it's good enough to win. Someone we're forgetting is Timon Arendsman. But there's also, yeah, you're right. Arendsman. I was just going to say it. <laughs> he, can, <laughs> he can increase, but like I see Giro Podium as a possibility if Thomas like crashes and so forth, but can he move up to a Grand Tour winning state? He'd have to have like a, a transition in the same way that Dumoulin had back in the day then. Yeah. And maybe even a bit more to be at the level that the actual top GC riders are now. But like Joshua Trolling is riding amazingly. Let's be honest about that. Dude's looking good. Look, Plapp was good at UAE Tour, but moving into like Grand Tour state, I'm not seeing it yet. Um, they're also spending a lot of money on like riders that might not necessarily make that breakthrough either. I don't know. What do you think about Ethan Hater? Because like, I bet he's on like over a million or a million roughly. And he doesn't seem to have that breakthrough in world tour level, except for like the Tour de Polonia, but fuck Tour de Polonia. No offense to Poland, <laughs> but it's not broadcasted much. No, it's um, so, yeah, I, I agree with you. I second that. I can't stand <laughs> that race. And it's like, I used to be on there in the tour. You're like, what are you doing? I like the race itself. I like Poland in general, but I don't like the fact that it's not broadcasted internationally. I think there was like some some political reason behind that with Eurosport and like political parties, but I, I, I don't remember it, so I can't fully say it. But that's one of the reasons that I like that Les Like Romany, I'm also another fan of. They've got, they've got a, a Swiss tour already. Like then again, Belgium has like 17 <laughs> things as well. So there's well, a funny story. That it shouldn't exist either. <laughs> <laughs> there, yeah, was, why, why Switzerland has two national tours is... Why does Belgium have 17 classics? Well, that's that's different. That's the heartbeat of cycling, <laughs> I think. We need those races. But you're right about Ethan Hader. So I'm just looking at their roster. I've heard half of the roster makes seven figures or more. So 15 riders making over a million pounds a year. Ethan yeah. Hader, great example. Talented rider. I, I don't like his climbing. I don't think he'll ever be a GC yeah. rider. Seemed like he should have just wrecked house. At Positioning. Tour down under. Positioning is terrible. Yeah, like... I, I don't know. It's he's a nice writer. I don't I wouldn't pay yeah. him a million pounds a year, that's for sure. Yeah. I think so as well. I agree with that. If you're running Enios, what did you think about the Pidcock descending video? Which I noticed I think it may have passed a million views by now and it was cool. I think it was good for the Tom Pidcock brand. What do you think it did for Enios and what do you think about a writer taking that level of risk? to make a YouTube video. And bit before Benji answers, this was, mm -hmm. he was in the United States yeah. where you're getting crushed. I mean, there's no deference to bikes here. That's insane. It is a one-way descent though, to be clear. So oh, there, I didn't know that. Yeah, I definitely, if you didn't know that it's a one-way uh, descent, that would be an even bigger problem. But if you've seen the, if you haven't seen the video, Pitcock, hits an oil spot maybe like a minute into the video his wheel goes sideways he recovers from it which we've seen him do before there's no guarantee that's gonna happen though and there's sand all over the road i've done a lot of uh the descents in socal i used to live there and i know he reconned it maybe twice but there's sand all over the road there are rocks you don't know if something's gonna slide off the side of a cliff and be in your apex so what do you think about this I would say that for the fans, it's fun to see. As in, for the fans, it's fun to see that cyclists are doing crazy things whenever they do tricks and so forth. 
whenever they do the Superman over the finish line, it's also not the safest thing to do. But this is like a, an extra degree. I think there's definitely going to be a point, and there's probably already a point with certain riders that they have things in their contracts of, oh, you can't go on skiing vacations or something, because if you have an accident there, then that might lead to stuff. When it comes to this kind of stuff, it's dangerous as well. And I think 99.9% .9 of the peloton doesn't do this crazy shit on training and so forth. I think Pitcock does this on training anyway. Regardless of this YouTube video, I think he descends like crazy in training as well, because that makes the sport fun for him. And maybe the team knows that. And maybe that's one of the things that Pitcock says, well, I'm going to keep on doing this. And then the team has to kind of balance it out. Are we willing to take the risk to have this rider on board that does this kind of stuff? And I think most teams would take the risk because handling's pretty good. But that being said, if I'm like one, uh, someone on a team, I'd be like, calm down, man. We, we pay like, what is it? Four million, whatever. We're probably more at this point for Pitcock at any else. That's a lot of money, that, eh? That team's never had anyone crash though. And then not be good. Nah, Egon Bernal or and Chris Froome and yeah, Chris Froome. You're right. Yeah, they, they don't have a history of highly paid riders, yeah, crashing off not racing and then never be good again. Didn't he break his collarbone in the running towards like toward the Swiss yeah, a few years yeah, ago? He, he did. In training. Yeah. yeah. I wonder how that happened. <laughs> but then again, let me do say I, I love Tom Pitcock and the rider that he is and the stuff that he does, as long as I don't pay him. <laughs> <laughs> has he regressed benji you think like i feel like he's not been the same since since that tour last year you know he has what one road win since that tour de france and he was not the same in cyclocross i think he'll be back i i don't like every rider that is that young can afford to have one year where they're not at the top level and we're not even at the most important part of the season yet for him that's like the classics are coming up and then the tour comes afterwards I do trust he'll be at a good level for that. So I wouldn't say regressed, but I haven't seen the progression that I hoped I would see. Fair, fair. It, and what's going on? Like, is Ineos just... Well, actually, no. I want to ask you this question. So is Quickstep a, ra a stage racing team now? I'd like to they pull are on that thread Andrew had from earlier. Mm -hmm. They are progressing towards a climbers team. I think that's pretty obvious. I think they're going to continue doing that. I think that's their priority for 2024 as well. When it comes to the 23 riders that go out of contract, I think the majority of their focus on re-signing and signing will be to build a tour team around Adam Kuevenepoel. And I don't see that as an issue. I think that's a good thing. But I hope that that works. Otherwise, they're transitioning to something where they're taking away from their Belgian classics and so forth that are also valuable for Quickstep as a sponsor. So as long as Avonpool keeps performing, this is a great transition because now you're kind of risking it on a single rider, no? Yeah. And do you think, I mean, I do you feel like at the UAE tour, that final stage, UAE was obviously strong. Quickstep kind of left Pickock there, not Pickock, Avonpool there by himself. Like, do they need to to beef up the the stage racing roster a little bit? To protect him or? Yeah, like stage seven where UAE ramps it up, Yates yeah, attacks them. I think that's a specific situation where we knew going into that stage that UAE would launch Adam Yates as soon as possible on the climb. And I was kind of surprised it wasn't a tiny bit earlier already because it took a bit until Yates made that move. They won't... They, well, the, the domestique at the UAE weren't able to like 
thin it down enough to make that launch happen. But I think when it comes to the quick step riders, like Mauro Schmidt was in a bad position going into the climb, positioning seems to be an issue for him. And that supposedly is the reason that he's also not going to the classics as a consequence. But we see when it comes to the others surrounding him, they had bad luck on the previous climbing stage. They were there next to the UAE riders and they were gone when the UAE riders were gone. So you would ask, yeah, is that... I wouldn't look at UAE tour. That's how I'd say it. Not that specific stage. I think going into the Giro, the team will be pretty strong, I would say. Will it be as strong as Yumbo? No. Um, can it be in the future, depending on their transfers? Jan Hirt is a very good signing for that team. And when it comes to other potential signings in the team, there's so many people on the market, eh? Like, there's a lot of old climbers on the market, and don't mean this in disrespectfully, experienced riders at the age of 30 to 35 are valuable if you don't give them a 17-year contract. And, like, if you look at ex-riders like David de la Cruz is now at Astana, could that rider potentially have the same domestic duties as he had at UAE two years ago at the 2020 Tour de France where he was one of the domestiques for Pogacar next to Polans? Could he do that at Quickstep, for example? Are there young domestiques that are on the market? Yes, there are. Won't go through the entire list now. I, I did that this morning. But uh, um, um, there's so many options that they could potentially sign. The question is, can they sign the ones that work? Because there's riders like Mulberger and Conrad, for example. You're looking at those two riders and you're saying, these riders have had good climbing performance in the past. Conrad really good in the past. Mulberger domestic performances in 2019, 2018, one of those two years. I think 2019 Tour, where he was one of the super domestiques in that race together with Laurenza Plus. If they sign Mulberger, will it be like Ineos signing the plus, where they don't really get it out of him? Or if they sign Conrad, who has been a bit meh the last two years, can they get him back to the days of 2020, 2021? Or should they go for younger riders like Steinhauser and so forth to try and fill up that team that might not be ready by 2024? Or do they have riders that can fit in that role that they're not using? Like, can Evan Sevenon be used in a mountain train for them, Quaven the Pool? Because we haven't seen that properly. Uh, before. So there's so many questions. I think they know the answers to it. They've got plenty of riders that go out of contract. I also think that Osgrain, Amgen Tour of California three years ago, four years ago, I think 2019 or 2020, when the last time it was ridden, podium that race, was a decent climber in that race, has climbed decent at Algarve. I think he could be that versatile climbing guy that could, first of all, help stopping other teams from sending breakaway riders up the road, satellite riders. And next to that, a versatile mystique that could go in the transitioning stages and also at the starting points in climbing stages. I think that's a dot. If Osgain wants to do that, I think that's a very valuable rider to keep and have in the tour team of Remco. I agree. I, the word on the street, though, is that Philippe and Asgren, Lefebvre wants to get rid of them to make room for, you know, for more of a state that, you know, get those guys off the books, bring in people that can just work for Remco. I mean, if Asgren, I guess this is, goes back to our computer versus reality thing. If Asgren, if you could convince him to do work in a grand tour, it's great. Is a guy who's won the tour of Flanders really going to want to do that? It would be stupid another... to ditch Asgren if you're a quick step. I, I agree. I think that's crazy. I even think money-wise after the last two years where now he's, He's ill just before the classics. Might he get to that level again? Last year, his classics weren't good because he was uh, sick also in February. So if he doesn't get back to a level that necessarily warrants big money, 
then if I'm Quicksilver, then I try and keep the money that he's on or keep that same similar salary that is on or probably not reduce it. That seems unrealistic for a ride like Osgrain, who will definitely have offers from other teams. I definitely keep Osgrain. Alaphilippe is a good domestique, but he's never... Should he do it at the Tour de France? Like, if you're Alaphilippe, you're at this point in your career, don't you want to just go to, like, make bank and ride for yourself? Yeah, exactly. A total energies or something like that. Take all the money of Van Avermaet at Age Désert. Money well spent. That guy, <laughs> that guy, that guy's a bucket, as they say in the U.S. Just, just gets wins. Um, no, you're totally right. He should go to a French team that pays him a ton of money. Why, why spend your time working for Renko yeah. Evenepoel at the Tour de France? Doesn't make any sense. Um, that is a little. It's a little funny. I mean, Lefebvre, I disagree with him on maybe how he conducts himself publicly yeah. and how he talks about riders, but it's he he make tends to make the right decision about when to dump highly popular big stars. You know, he's almost never wrong on that. Yes, but do you think he should have kept Cavendish instead of signing Malier? Merlier little... signing is paying off when it comes to stage wins. That was obvious. It was going to happen. We knew that would happen if he joins Quickstep. But isn't it better to have Jakobsen, who hasn't been performing amazingly at the start of the season here, with Cavendish, who might be able to do what Merlier does in one of the UAE Tour stages, even if it's not two? Is it that big of a deal, knowing that it might warrant you to have signed the Wout Pools already as like a super domestique for this year? He probably doesn't. I don't know. It's a good question. Lefebvre probably doesn't think Cavendish can win tour stages anymore and that Tim Merlier can. And at the end of the day, he's probably prioritizing that because they don't even, his stage racing plan doesn't even really kick in until 2024, right? Like they're not, they're just going to go to the Tour de France to try to win stages. Yeah. Giro, Demko, Tour de France stage wins with Alaphilippe, with, with either Jakobs nor Tim Merlier. I think at the moment, Melier is sprinting better, but it depends on how big Jakobsen can get again when he comes to his form. If he returns to the form of last year, they're pretty similar then for the Tour de France, I think. I don't know. I'm, they, they also... Merck, is not as a, at his best days anymore when it comes to leadouts. Can Kasper Peterson fill that role? Or will Merkov be able to like get back to the level that he was in the past and deliver again in that sense? I don't know. I feel like the top sprinters are just so close to each other this year. Yeah, it doesn't feel like there's any separation there. Do you feel like the, you know, let's just say Pascal Ackerman, Fabio Jakobsen, and Sam Bennett, three physically big guys, were big stars in sprinting maybe right when COVID was hitting? hitting. Yeah. Do you feel like they're not at the level they're, they've been at and that they maybe will never come back to that? It's difficult. Sam Bennett, because Van Poppel is his lead out, he can still get the wins in Grand Tours. Like in the Vuelta, if he doesn't have Van Poppel, he doesn't win those two stages, in my yeah. opinion. And we currently see that he can't win that despite some good leadouts at UAE Tour, where he seemed to either doesn't have the confidence to go from the distance anymore that he was on because he gets like people go over him right by the time he should have launched already. Or Van Poppel doesn't go to the side. I'm still not sure what the best way to do that was. Because if you watch the UAE Tour, Van Poppel launches on the left side of the road. And Bennett is in his wheel. Grunewijn comes over it. And as a consequence, Bennett can't get out of the wheel. Is that the fault of Van Poppel for not going out of the way and opening up the barrier side for Bennett? Or is that the fault of Bennett not going earlier 
or both. I guess it depends what the discussion was before. Bennett probably yeah. is you know, my reading of Bennett is that he loses confidence easily and he needs to be going earlier. Yeah. Like that's the way to just minimize variables. And he's a big, strong guy. You can put out a ton of Watts for a long time. Yeah. Just get out there in the wind. It doesn't matter. I yeah. think Van Poppel expected him to go instead of Grunewagen. Yeah, I think so as well. But anyway, I've got no clue what the question was anymore. So we good further <laughs> towards lead outs. Andrew is, <laughs> is Alaphilippe Watt. The peek behind the curtain, Andrew disappeared for a minute. So we've yeah. got him back. Hopefully no disruptions to the recording. Is Alaphilippe, <laughs> is it time for him to leave quick step? I just stepped away for a high altitude training camp in Columbia. I'm, seem I'm now back. I'm wearing a skull cap, so my head is more arrow. Yeah, I think with Alaphilippe, you can't tell everything from watching the content that a team puts out. But if you watch some of the quick step content from the last few years, it seemed to me that Alaphilippe was a center of gravity for the spirit of that team. That was the vibe that came across in the content that they were putting out. And I don't think that you can have more than one center of gravity within a team in that regard. And I think that that shifted and it's time for him to go. Uh, I think he needs to be somewhere else to get his best results. And with the shift in the team's orientation, I don't think we're going to see Alaphilippe at his best this year. I don't know. He just won in a French race. Not the highest level race, but the competition was pretty decent. Mm, I expect him to win flesh. Was that, oof, that him? That's it. Yeah. I mean, wouldn't be surprised. The only thing about Alaphilippe uh, is he wins less than you think post 2020. You know, the world championships obviously remember those and yeah. they stand out. He's averaging the like three, stages? three wins a year for the last three years, which for a rider like that is not a ton. Kept having freakish wrecks too. He crashes. Yeah, the crashing is is the problem. That's why he's he's not winning as much. Agreed. Like, what would his salary be at Quick Step? That's a good question. Yeah, he like he's on like question. one million. Then I'm like, well, he should probably be earning more. And if you want them to win every single Tour de France stage in the way that Sagan was doing in his prime days and so forth, but if he's like at two point five million, then you're talking about okay, maybe he's on too much for what he's performing. He does, if he goes to the Tour de France, every single time he goes, he does get that stage win and the, and the yellow jersey. So is that enough? Because on paper, that's your one of your season goals with Alaphilippe. Next to the likes of an LBL who hasn't worked out, one time where he deviated and then got passed by Roglic. And I don't know the rest of the times, so can't remember. <laughs> it's funny you mentioned the money, and you guys talked about this in regards to DeMar. It was like two off seasons ago on your podcast yeah. with Patrick. And he's like, for the money you're paying him, you're not getting enough. And then he went on to have like the best yeah. season of his career. We'll forget that part. But <laughs> I <laughs> talked to a team this off season about like coming on board to help them with like talent evaluation. And, you know, I was explaining like, you know, you want to weigh a writer's expected performance over what you're going to pay yeah. them. And they're like, oh, we don't, we don't pay attention to what we pay them. And I'm like, that's the most important part. Yeah. Like if you're paying Alaphilippe a hundred thousand euros a year, that's, that's a great yeah. deal. If you're paying him five million euros a year, it's a terrible deal. But it's funny in cycling, it's not that type of thinking that's kind of dominated US sports at this point, hasn't quite taken hold. What do you think? From Popple and Bennett's salary, should that be more balanced than it is in real life? In the sense of, Van Poppel is 
in my opinion, more than 50% of those victories. But obviously he's being paid significantly less than Sam Bennett, which is a sprinter. Should leadouts be paying more, be paid more? Yeah, yes. This is this, this used to be a thing in American football where quarterbacks were like running backs were the stars who got paid a lot. Quarterbacks yeah. were somewhat interchangeable. Now quarterbacks get all the money, running backs are interchangeable and make not very much. It 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 sounds radical because sprinters are the stars. Yeah. Like that's the person you remember, but yeah, as you say, like Cavendish can't even get close to contested these sprints because he doesn't have a lead out. Like if he had Van Poppel, he might be winning stages at this Tour de France and get the record. You'd think that yep. that is the hardest thing to replace, and they they probably should get paid more. But it's difficult to see that happening. Agreed, because they could have any, you know, any replacement level sprinter on their wheel. Yeah, Van Poppel could and probably deliver them to a win. Put Wellsford on on the wheel of Van Poppel during yeah. the, the Tour de France, and he wins two stages at least. Exactly. But Philipson on the wheel of Van Poppel during the Tour de France last year, and he wins four or five stages instead yeah. of two years. He's the he, we, we were talking about him as the best sprinter in the world. If he yep. has Van Poppel as his lead out, Philipson I guess is the best sprinter in the world. Last year, I don't know about this year. We haven't we've seen him crash and we've seen him have a puncture on the mute on here his betting, so I can't judge right now. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm a Philipson fan. There's dozens of us, Benji. There's dozens of us who who think Philipson's the best sprinter in the world. Yeah. It's not the end of the world. <laughs> well, I don't I don't want to keep you too long, Andrew. Do you have anything else you want to talk to you want to ask Benji before we, we take off? I have infinity I'd like to ask Benji, so we'll have to I, I, come back and problem. do this again. Yeah. Yeah. I have one question for you. Perry Nice, next week. Who who's winning this thing? Pogachar or Vindigard? Isn't there like a team time trial? I haven't looked at the Parker of Barney. I should have looked this at the Parker less, of Barney. This is less fun to look at it and actually make a, a reasonable thing. Mm, what what is think, going on with these team trials? Team time trials. They're like back and forth now. Yeah. A 32 kilometer team time trial. On paper, Vingegaard should take that with a 32 kilometer team time trial. But I kind of feel like Pogaccio will be on a higher level at this point in the year, even with the stuff we saw from Vingo at Gran Camino. I think I'm going to say Vingo above Pogacar for this one because of the team time trial. It's kind of, this is an ASO race, if I'm, if I'm yeah. remembering correctly. Correct. It's kind of clever they did this. This is an absurdly long team time trial. It muddies the waters. So yeah, Vingegaard could beat Pogacar because of the team time trial. And then we're all still asking ourselves, well, who's the stronger rider? And then we have to wait for the Tour de France to see. Yeah. The fun thing is that if we look at stage uh, eight in Nice, it's, it's a typical stage that we see action on from early on. So there's terrain where Pogacar can fight back after the TTC. And hopefully it doesn't. Hopefully it's like, hopefully the winner wins by like one second. Oh, would love it. That, that does happen because of that. That stage is so crazy in the last day. You do see some yeah. small margins here. All I right, want well, to jump. Thanks, sorry, I've just got to jump in with two more, two more quick ones, Spencer. This could become another hour, but if we had <laughs> to do this in thirty seconds, because we haven't really talked about these two names, or maybe it happened when uh, I froze during the recording. But They're Benji, fine. Benji, if you had to put on your wizard's hat, which I think is just slightly off screen right now, I know you have one. Um, what victories? What are the major victories that we're going to see for Benjamin Germay this season and for Matthew <sighs> Vanderpool? And we could do another hour on this, but if you had to 
guess right now? I think Binyam will have trouble winning at the big stage. As in, the other teams, the top teams, he'll have to respond to a lot himself. He has Turnison by his side now, but is that enough to really respond to everything? I don't know. I think Binyam will have trouble. I hope he wins the Tour de France stage. That would be amazing, like the first or second stage in Basque Country. Um, I, I think uh, Pique Bidea is like one of the climbs in the first one, together with the uh, Fivero climb. And then the second uh, stage has the one from San Sebastian, but my memory isn't enjoying the name of that right now. Um, I think he can compete for both. And I'd personally like to see him win one of those. So let me just say he'll he'll win one of the first two stages at the Tour de France. That'd be nice. Classics, I don't see it happening. What about Matthew Vanderpool? I am gonna go with Strada Bianca. <laughs> Nobody else is there. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> uh, we could do like, another hour on Strada. Is that even a real race? It's like yes, that's a real race. 150k. It's eight years old. It's our Grand Fondo. <laughs> I'm, I'm kidding. Are you a, are you a cycling <laughs> traditionalist, my friend? No, no. I just I feel weird because it makes me feel old because I remember when they started the race. I'm like I don't like this. I want my races to be older <laughs> than I am. This makes me feel uncomfortable. But well, no, well, Strada is well. a great race. It, it's a little awkward because it's it's exciting. A lot of people watch it. A lot of people get into it. It's really early, so. You know, Vanderpool could just storm away, win it, and then can you hold form all the way to Roubaix? You know, that that's yeah. really hard to do. I think so as well. I think in Roubaix, he might have trouble team-wise uh, against like a block of Yumbo. I think RVV is more the one where he could strike again in the same fashion that uh, an MSR he could also strike. But it is difficult when it comes to Vanderpool because I... I don't really know what to expect when it comes to level because he hasn't raced yet. So it's difficult to really say, oh, he's going to be at that level after doing CX. He's world champion CX. Maybe that's his best victory of the year. I doubt it. Um, he can also compete for the first two stages of the Tour de France like a lot of these guys can. So there's a lot possible. I'm going to give you Strade still. And I think other riders that will do well there, Attila Walter got fourth last year. I believe in him. Andreas Kron will be in the top 10. Lorenzo Rota, if he's going, could be in the top 10. I'm looking at those guys to like get good positions. I hope Walter top fives. I don't know why. I could say you've been like a Walter believer for a long yeah. time. Yeah. Yeah, he's now, a friend of mine, so I'm completely biased. Oh, that's why. <laughs> he's gonna have a good he's gonna have a good year this year. And you're yeah. gonna look like a genius for talking about him for the last two exactly. years. Exactly. Like Patrick would vine. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. All right. Well, thanks so much, Benji. Thanks, Andrew, as well. And we will we'll pull you back on during the season. We'll, we'll get you in our crosshairs. You won't be able to get out. And so thanks, everyone, for listening. And I hope you enjoyed it. And make sure to listen to Andrew's deep dive with Benji about his life over on his feed. And I'll put a link in the show notes.